Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Plant Powered People Podcast with your hosts, Michelle Kane and Tony Okamoto. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Every- Year. We are all trying to decide who we want to be, how we want to live in the new year, how we want to improve on our health and our lifestyle choices. And this episode is is really going to inspire people to make change. Our guest that we're bringing on is Adam Sud, and he's after reading his story and we're recording this now after recording the interview, I was in tears, I was shaking, I was emotional. Like it is very impactful story. He's a seventh generation Texan who was addicted to fast food. He was suffering from drug abuse and addiction, severe depression, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, severed relationships with pretty much everyone meaningful in his life, including his relationship with himself. His story is one of hitting rock bottom and then getting back up. And he shares a wealth of knowledge and tips that he's gained over his experience and personal stories that we can all apply to our own lives to step out of either a downward spiral or just step into our goals for the year in a sustainable and healthy way that's going to work with us rather than against us. Adam was on death's doorstep and has completely reclaimed his health and he's going to tell his story. We did want to give a trigger warning. This episode includes explicit language, mention of suicidal thoughts and food and substance addiction. First, we'd like to thank our sponsors of this episode, plantbasedmealplan.com and Paco Foods. Every year we host a meal planning challenge where we help people meal plan plant-based meals designed to help establish healthy habits and save lots of money. We're so excited for these plant-based on a budget meal plans to be our first sponsor of the year. You can join the challenge by getting our meal plan at plantbasedmealplan.com. They're just $5 and we'll give you a full roadmap for how to grocery shop, meal prep, and eat in a way that is both nourishing and money saving. You can get a one week meal plan or up to a full month. Plus, we have some special meal plans like our daily dozen meal plan that's inspired by Dr. Gregor's book, How Not to Die. And that one is Michelle's favorite. And we hope that you'll check them out and join the party at plantbasedmealplan.com. We hope to see you there. We'd also like to thank our next sponsor, Paco Foods. Paco is changing the game with their vegan dog food. They developed the first meat that's specially designed for dogs and made from plants. People can go to the grocery store and pick up juicy, meaty vegan burgers and hot dogs and so much more. So it's really exciting and about time that dogs could now enjoy vegan meat too. Paco specially formulates their dog food to include all the vitamins, minerals, protein, and nutrients that pups need to thrive. And a lot of people don't realize this, but dogs are actually omnivores like us. They are not carnivores. And their top three allergens are actually animal products, chicken, meat, and dairy. So this is also an option that can help dogs that are struggling with allergies as well. Dogs love how tasty Paco meals are. And if you want to see how much your dog will love the taste of Paco foods, you can get 50% off of your first box right now when you visit mypaco.com. That's mypawco.com. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. We're excited to have you. This is a big episode. So many people are coming out of the holidays and they just had a lot of indulgence. And your story is so incredibly inspiring. And I think it's going to touch a lot of people. And before we dive into the nitty gritty of it all, I would love for you to, in brief, share a little bit about who you are today, what you do, where you are, and just give us a heads up of who Adam is in present day. Thank you. Yeah. So my name is Adam Sud. I go by plant-based addict on social media. For the last five years, I've been an insulin resistance expert and diabetes food addiction coach with a group called Mastering Diabetes. I am also involved with Rip Esselstyn's Plant Strong group, and and, uh, I'm an international speaker for the plant-based movement. I'm also the founder of a nonprofit called Plant-Based for Positive Change. And we just completed the very first controlled trial investigating the effects of plant-based nutrition on early addiction recovery outcomes. 
And it's actually the first study of any kind to investigate any diet and its impact on early addiction recovery outcomes. And we're really excited to, uh, to publish the findings uh, later this year. Hopefully, we've got about four manuscripts we're looking to publish. So some exciting stuff. That is really exciting. So <laughs> you're doing incredible work in so many different places. It's That's like a whole other story of how you can find the time to be so active and <laughs> so motivating to, it seems like a lot of people in different organizations. Thank you. It's been a gift. How did you start down this path? Can you take us from the beginning of where you were when the genesis of your plant-based journey began? And and if you feel comfortable, even a little bit before that in your deepest, darkest moments. Yeah. I tell people, I'm a sixth or seventh generation Texan and I'm a Jew. So I grew up eating burgers and barbecue and bagels and blintzes. I like to tell people that I ate a standard American diet wearing cowboy boots with chutzpah. But I had this amazing childhood. I was born in 1982. Like I was a child of my own accord in like the late 80s and early 90s, which was a wonderful time to be a kid. I rode my bike to and from school with my, my friends played outdoors every single day. My dad taught me how to play baseball and basketball and football and every sport under the sun. And my mom was really involved in inspiring my imagination. And with all these amazing things, I'm a twin. I have an identical twin of a younger sister. So I've always like had, you know, people around kids that were my age or younger in the neighborhood running around. It was fantastic. And even though all these amazing things were going on, there were some things that profoundly impacted my relationship with myself. And it really started like around age 10. I can remember I was, it was the summer in Texas running around all day long in a bathing suit and I run inside. My parents stopped me and they asked me why I already have love handles. And now remember I'm 10 years old, so I've never heard the term love handles before. I don't know what they are. I don't know how you get them. Certainly don't, didn't know why this was already, you know, an issue, but more, more importantly, I recognized that it was an issue to my parents. There was concern involved. And before that moment, I would run around all day long, fully accepting of myself, both physically and emotionally. And within a second, that changed. Because what got placed onto me was the belief that there were conditions upon which I was allowed to accept myself completely. And this caused me to feel very fearful because... If there's one condition, there must be others. And why do I not know what they are? I really started to experience a kind of hypervigilance, a kind of anxiety at a young age where I was very, very aware of other people's response to me. I wanted to know, were they looking and seeing something about myself, either behavior-wise or appearance-wise, that wasn't acceptable so that I could try to figure out what it was and, and hide it or fix it or whatever it was. And my parents explained, you know, Hey, love handles are this, and you know, you shouldn't have them at your age. And it was a very confusing moment because I'm certainly not feeding myself. I'm not going to the grocery store at 10. So I'm not the one picking out the food. So I, you know, I didn't understand how am I supposed to change what I'm doing? I don't even know what I'm doing at all. And since I didn't understand any sort of way to fix the situation, I started to engage in closet eating behavior because what what was really clear was that food was a problem. That was the the messaging that I heard. Food was the problem. And I didn't want to stop eating food and especially junk food because it was available and I was 10. So I started to grab food from the kitchen and run into my bedroom and I eat alone in the dark. And I did this because I was ashamed and I was afraid. I was ashamed that I didn't know it was okay not to know these things. And I was afraid that my parents would see me doing this. And if they did, they wouldn't accept or love me. And when you're 10, your parents are your entire world. So to not be loved and accepted by them would feel like not being loved and accepted by the entire world. Now, I want to be clear, that's not the way my parents felt. That's my interpretation of what I thought was happening. And at about the same time, I was taken to a doctor and I was diagnosed with ADHD. And this was just another moment where a person whose opinion of me was going to be very, very valuable to my parents. 
essentially what this doctor was telling them, this isn't word for word, was we found something else out about your son that doesn't work right and that isn't acceptable and that people don't want to be around and it's ADHD. And what we're going to do is we're going to give him this pill and it's called Ritalin. And if he takes it, he will no longer be unacceptable to people. It's going to hide his problem from others. I really think that that moment, what I heard or what I interpreted was when there's something about yourself that you don't love or that others don't like or don't love, your job is to find some way to fix it or hide it. And substances might be a really great way to do that. There's got to be a pill. There's got to be a, you know, some kind of, of medication out there that's going to fix you so that you can be acceptable to the world around you. And we moved to Austin, Texas, right before I started high school. So I, we moved from Houston to Austin, start high school, not knowing anybody, going to this big Texas football high school where, no joke, Drew Brees was the quarterback of our football team. And I got bullied a lot my freshman year until they found out that I now had a prescription for a medicine called Adderall. Now, most people know what Adderall is. Adderall is an amphetamine-based medication that's used to treat ADHD. But what I didn't know was that this was something that people would like to know about me. And overnight, kids who I would avoid in the hallways out of fear of being bullied or beaten up, all of a sudden they had their arms around my neck, holding me as their friend walking down the hallway, you know, hey, Adam, what's going on, man? Good to see you. Oh, man, I hope you're coming to the party this weekend. And oh my God, it felt so good. Even though I knew I wasn't stupid, right? They, I knew that they were inviting me because they wanted me to come and bring my Adderall with me. But it felt so good to feel valuable to someone. And so I brought my medication with me. I brought it to the party and, and, and I, was a, I was a popular person because of it. Because I was not only going to make your party fun, I was likely going to make it one of the best parties because I could give my medication to kids and they would have an amazing time. And I had not used it as a recreational drug until that time. I can remember using it for the first time as a recreational drug. And I was immediately hooked to what it offered. I wasn't hooked to the substance. That's important. I was very much bonded with the opportunity that it delivered for me. See, I was a little overweight in high school. I was late to start puberty. I was very shy making new friends because I'd been bullied. I really wasn't getting along too well with my dad. We had a lot of arguments about my study habits because I just had a hard time studying. And Adderall just seemed to magically fix all of that. I had boundless energy. I was not only the life of the party, I'm, I, I could party all night long. Uh, it gave me unbelievable confidence, right? I could go up to anybody and talk to them about whatever they were talking about, and it would immediately be interesting. Adderall is an amphetamine, right? That's what the stuff is. And so it made loss very, very simple. My metabolism goes through the roof. I have no hunger drive. Fantastic. Solve that problem too. And it allowed me to hyper-focus in a way I had not been able to do on my own, which made me appear as though I had resolved my study issues. And all of a sudden, those arguments around homework and studying went away in regards to my dad and I's relationship. And that felt phenomenal. So all of a sudden, I was an exciting person to be around. I had friends. I got girlfriends. I lost the weight. My relationship with my dad had gotten better. All of these seemingly very difficult problems in my life seemed to go away. And here's the important part. With unbelievable ease and unbelievable repeatability. That's really, really important thing to note. They didn't just solve my problems. They solved them with ease and repeatability. And for a kid who has no way of figuring out how to do it any other way, that's incredibly attractive. And Adderall worked for me. My goodness, did it work. I even got a scholarship to the college that I wanted to go to. But in college, that's where things really took a turn because more became not enough. And not enough became an overwhelming and all-consuming problem. How much do I have left? How long will it last? How much will it cost to get more? All of those sorts of recurring problems that seemed to overwhelm my day. And it became too overwhelming to the point to where by the time I was a, a sophomore in college, I just dropped out of college. 
And I told my parents what I wanted to do was I wanted to take like a year off and just go work. And while it's true, I did line up a job for myself in Austin when I moved back to Austin from Georgia. That was not at all the reason. The reason why I wanted to to drop out of college was because in Austin, I knew all of the dealers and I knew the doctors that I could scam. And that's exactly what I started doing. I started buying and selling drugs on the street. I started doctor shopping. That's where you have multiple doctors prescribing the same medications without them knowing about it. They're, They're not aware of each other. This is a felony. I started forging prescriptions and I really started to engage in criminal drug behavior. I was scamming people. I was stealing from my family. I was treating my family like absolute garbage. It was this sort of slight, subtle, and imperceptible shift from trying to just figure it out. Hey, this stuff isn't working like it used to. Let me, I bet I could figure out. I just need a little bit more and I can figure it out. To now, it's really started to create unbelievable disorder in my life. And to, to a point where I can't even get a hold of it anymore. I can't get a handle on it. It's just going to keep going downhill. And there's this belief that I, I, if I could just get it right again, I can make it like it used to be. And what it used to be was a solution. It's looking like an insurmountable problem, but it was once the most incredible solution. I've got to be able to figure it out. And I ended up losing all of my friends. I ended up losing my job. I ended up separating myself from my family because I would only see them to blame them or shame them for everything that was wrong in my life or to you know try and get money out of them. I was desperately running out of drugs. The minute I got it, I'd be out and I'd desperately be looking for more. And I have, you know, one, two, three, even sometimes three weeks where I couldn't get any. And my goodness, I found an incredible solution that ended up being fast food where I would get up every single day and eat about 5,000 calories of fast food, 20 sodas, four cheeseburgers, large pizza from Papa John's. And I would do this just so that all I wanted to do was get a moment's relief from what the real world had to offer and my experience with it. And just do it, go to sleep, get through these two weeks, wake up, finally get more drugs. Then on a daily basis, let me explain to you what the average dose for Adderall is. The average person is prescribed about 10 milligrams for every 24 hours. I was doing anywhere from 450 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams a day. And I would do it for six days straight. I wouldn't sleep. I wouldn't eat. I would end up in the beginning stages of a drug-induced psychosis where I would hear things that weren't really happening. I would develop obsessive compulsive tics. And I would, it would require me to take opiates in order to get myself to stop using uppers, go to sleep, and just finally wake up and start it all over again. And this was a really desperate time in my life. And my weight got to a point where I was nearly 350 pounds. And at this time, my dad came to me and he, he offered me an opportunity. And it's really important. At this point in my life, I was a very mean person. Not that I wanted to be. I didn't know any other way to do it. And I was very mean to my parents. I was very mean to my dad. And my dad never once gave up on me. And he came to me and he offered me the opportunity to attend a seven-day event hosted by a man named Rip Esselstyn. Now, this was 2010. So people didn't know who he was yet. He wasn't like as big of a name as he is now. And me not being involved at all in anything close to what we considered health movement had no idea who he was. And my dad said, hey, I want you to come talk to this guy. Because Rip was living in Austin then, he still does now. And I go down to this office, I meet with this guy named Rip Esselstyn, who, you know, my dad says is this guy who wrote this book about eating plants and how it could change your life. And I'm going to tell you right now, I didn't know who he was. I didn't want to know who he was. I sure as shit didn't want to know what a plant-based diet was. The only thing I was trying to do was convince my dad that I was interested enough that he would keep giving me money. And I went, I remember meeting with Rip and I was in his office and I said all the the bullshit that I needed to say in order to convince Rip to let me attend his retreat, because at the time it was only available to Whole Foods Market employees, but they had a few open spots. My dad has been involved with Whole Foods Market since the founding. And so he said, Hey, look, if they've got a few open spots, I bet I can get, get you one of them, but you got to convince Rip that you really want to do this. And so I just said all the bullshit lies I needed to say, and I got a spot and I showed up to this retreat high on drugs. In fact, I was very, at this time, things were really, really rough. I was very diaphoretic, which means I I was flushed red. And I would usually sweat through about two shirts a day. 
I wasn't really showering very much. And my, and I lived in, a, in an apartment that looked very much like a hoarder's apartment. So I smelled very toxic. It was very disruptive to people to be around me. And in fact, my appearance and my presence was so disruptive to the other participants and the staff that there was talks about having me removed early from the retreat. And I know from what I know now, because Rip has become a very, very dear friend of mine, is Rip is one of these people, he has a gift of seeing the best in people. And I truly believe that the reason why I stayed at that retreat was because Rip, Rip insisted on it. You know, I, I think that what he saw was someone who needed it the most. While I was high every single day, I brought drugs to this retreat. I was using every single day. I still went to every lecture and I listened to everything that was being said. And I learned about the profound opportunity that a plant-based diet offers somebody and their ability to reclaim their health. And it also spoke to a real core value of mine, which is, you know, a, a love for the natural world and the animals around me. That's a, a quality I got from my grandmother. And I wish I could tell you that that was enough. I wish I could say that it all made sense, which it did. I wish I could tell you that it spoke to me, which it did. And I wish I could tell you that that's all I needed in order to change my life. And it wasn't. See, it's important to understand that I wasn't willing to give up what was allowing me to escape a life that was too painful a place to be on the gamble that this plant-based diet thing would work knowing trying the plant-based diet might feel very, very, very scary. And so I left, maybe ate the diet for two days and immediately went back to drug use and food. And my life got worse. And at around August 21st of 2012, I was 30 years old. I had uh, all these infected cuts on my legs because I get these mosquito bites and I would scratch them and then they, they wouldn't heal and, I, and they would get infected. And I didn't know why I had already developed erectile dysfunction for reasons I didn't understand. My weight was nearly 350 pounds and living just hurt in every sense of the word, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. It was painful. I was alone, not because people didn't want to be there for me, but because I made it impossible for them to be there for me. And every single day, was the most painful it had ever been. And every single day I was convinced that the next day would be worse. And after enough time in that sort of state, tomorrow's just not something you wanna be a part of. And I had been battling suicidal thoughts for about six months and I didn't have a plan. You know, I didn't write a note. I you know, this wasn't something that I had been consciously building towards, but on August 21st of 2012, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I tried to end my life. By a purposeful overdose. I grabbed a handful of pills. I threw them down my throat. And, you know, I had been on the verge of, I've, I've nearly overdosed several times, but this felt distinctly different. I can remember trying to stand up and my entire right side of my body cramped. And it felt like I got stabbed in my stomach with a hot knife. And all of a sudden, my vision starts to go black from the periphery. And I have this overwhelming sense that this is the last moment I'm going to experience in my life. The feeling, and I'm not talking about the physical feeling I just described to you. I'm talking about the feeling my life was about to end completely severed from every meaningful, loving bond I've ever had in my life was one of the most painful experiences of my life. And I woke up about two hours later in a puddle of vomit surrounded by empty pill bottles in a pile of fast food garbage. And after about an hour or so of dealing with the after effects of it, I was overcome with unbelievable relief. I found that to be really odd because I, you know, was fully, I really thought that what I wanted to do was end my life. But the, the reality is that I would only be relieved to be alive if there was something about my life that I loved enough, that even if today was going to be the most painful day I've ever had, I still wanted to be a part of it. And that was really useful for me because it, it allowed me to understand that suicide is not someone wanting to end their life. It's someone wanting to end their pain. It's a pain that they, they don't understand. It's a pain that they don't know it's okay not to understand. It's a pain that they don't know it's okay to tell someone, hey, I don't know what I'm doing here and I don't know any other way to do it and I need help. And believe me, I was that guy. I was that guy that if, if you were my friend and you loved me, or if you were my family member 
and you loved me at some point over the previous 10 years, you would have come up to me and you said, Adam, what the hell are you doing, man? Like, don't you see where this is going? Don't you see the pain that you're causing yourself, the disruption you're causing your life and the disorder that you're creating for your family? Don't you see what's the matter with you? Why are you doing this? You would have done this out of love. And I still would have looked you in the eye and said, fuck you. You don't know me. You don't know what it's like. You don't know how painful this is. And you don't know the relief that I get for two hours when I use. So don't come here telling me that like I need to stop this because you don't know how hard this shit is. And if it costs me five years, fine. I'm okay with it. This is how I'm doing it. And I don't know what what else to do. So leave me alone. And I think about that now. Man, I used to throw that number out there like it was nothing. I used to say, I'll give away five years for this. Man, five years. I think about if I had been successful on August 21st of 2012, God, what wouldn't my family give for five years with me? What wouldn't they give for five more days with me? What wouldn't they give for five extra minutes? Seriously, think about it. Think about a person who was a part of your life that was unbelievably meaningful and held an incredibly loving bond with you and they're no longer around. What wouldn't you do for five more minutes with that person? I think that this is a good place to process. You just gave us so much. And the first thing of all of your story that really hit me is the power of our words. It all started with what may have seemed like a simple comment from your parents. They may have not thought twice about it, but it impacted the rest of your life. And I hope people who are listening understand the impact and the power they have. And maybe they can feel inspired to think twice or sit a little bit longer before speaking and try to understand long-term impact and also try to use the most compassionate route. Maybe not even need to say something if it's negative uh, and unnecessary. I completely agree. You know, the things we choose to believe about ourselves have consequences. The things that we choose to say have consequences, not just on us, but on the people that we care about. And so, you know, in that moment, I remember I, I picked up the phone and I called my parents and without even thinking about it, as soon as they answered, I said, I need help. And without even, I can't, I, I, I don't even remember a second passing before they said, Adam, that's all we want to do for you. And I checked into rehab about two weeks later. And within 72 hours of being in rehab, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, and a whole host of psychological conditions and put on about 15 medications for life. That was the, that was the plan. It really kind of, cause I was, I was like a cliche walking into treatment. Like, believe me, I, w- I went to treatment high. I was like, I'm going to do 28 days. I'm going to get a handle on it. I'll come home. I'll still use, but it won't be a problem anymore. Like an absolute cliche. And thank goodness I was so sick because this diagnosis that I got, while it might've seemed like, oh my gosh, what, what an awful thing. You were trying to get sober and then you found out you have all these other things. That must've been the worst thing ever. What it did was it really allowed me to see the reality that if I'm not willing to change everything about the way that I move through the world, just not using alone won't save my life. I have to radically and profoundly change the direction in which I move through life. And I was like, I was transported back to the seven days with Rip because this doctor in front of me was like, oh, you're diabetic. You will be for life. Oh, you have heart disease. You will be, you will have it for life because it's genetic. Oh, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, man, Rip and his dad and people like Doug Lyle and Dr. Michael Clapper, all these other doctors are like, no, Adam, this is what's actually happening. The reason why the reason why you weigh 350 pounds, have diabetes and heart disease is because that is exactly what is supposed to happen when you eat 5,000 calories of fast food on a regular basis and do copious amounts of drugs and ignore your health in every sense of the word. This isn't a problem. This makes complete sense. This is a reasonable response to how you've been living. This isn't what's gone wrong with you. This is a, a healthy response to an unhealthy way of living. If you were to simply just make a massive and radical and doable shift 
in the environment that you find yourself in, your body should have the same reasonable response to its new environment. You should likely reverse every single one of these conditions. And I remember saying to myself, man, I don't know anything about mental health at the time. I certainly didn't understand addiction at the time, but I've been very good at being able to put food on my plate. I'm simply going to make it easy to put plants on my plate instead of fast food. And in rehab, they wouldn't let me do that. They wouldn't let me change my diet. But I moved into a sober living facility after 37 days of rehab. And at this sober living facility, I actually got to write out a list of groceries. And then the house manager would send one of the assistant managers to pick up everything that the guys at the house asked for. And then they stocked the kitchen. So I am in control. This is exactly what I'm asking for. This is exactly what I needed. And I walked up to the house manager who, no joke, his last name is Hamburger. And I asked him to buy me oatmeal, black beans, rice, frozen veggies, and oil-free sauces. So oil-free marinara, ketchup, mustard, that whole thing. And I love telling people that my plant-based journey started with a hamburger. You can't write this stuff. You can't make it up, but it's fantastic. And I remember getting up the next day, going into the kitchen of the halfway house, the sober living house. And it was almost like a cosmic joke because I opened up the cabinet and they put my oatmeal right next to Fruity Pebbles. And look, I know people might have a different opinion, but the best cereal that's ever been made in the history of humanity is Fruity Pebbles. Period. End of story. Sorry. That's just the way it is. And I was like, how in the world did they do this to me? They put it right next to the Fruity Pebbles. and I would get really angry. I mean, like throwing a fit angry. And I didn't understand why. This is why I was getting so angry. What I didn't get was, why couldn't this whole thing be a matter of intellect and will? What I mean is, why can't I just know what to do and want to do it? And then that's it. You'll just do it. Why is this so hard to do what I know is the right thing to do? Then I remembered a talk by Dr. Doug Lyle. Evolutionary psychologist wrote the book, The Pleasure Trap, gave a TED Talk of the same name. And what he talks about is the biological mechanism of compulsion. Why, if we know what to do to be happy and healthy, why is it so difficult to do it? And he talks about the purpose of dopamine and that dopamine is like a guidance system. And what it did was it allowed us to outcompete environments of scarcity. In an environment where calories are hard to find and competitive and dangerous to get, if we have a system that allows us to identify foods that have the most calories per bite and compel us to repeat that behavior, we win. Dopamine system is a guidance system that helps us get the biggest bang for our buck. And in an environment of scarcity, it's phenomenal. But look at what's happened over the last 100 years. The caloric environment has made a massive shift. Now there's far more calories per bite than have ever existed in human history. And they're incredibly convenient. They're very easy to get. They don't cost us a lot of energy. And it's not very competitive. If someone else gets a bag of chips before me, there's another bag right behind them. It's no big deal. This guidance system has no understanding that the shift has occurred. So it's still operating in the same way it did in an environment of scarcity. It's making us feel good about choices that are leading us in directions we don't want to go. It's allowing us to feel that that pizza that we just bit into, which has an unbelievable amount of calories per bite, feels successful when in fact it's self-destructive. What I really gathered from this book was that if I want to be successful, Number one, understand that the reason why it feels hard is because that is exactly how it's supposed to feel. When your dopamine receptors have been completely blown up by the modern food environment, and in order to feel like you're getting enough pleasure to indicate a successful choice, you have to eat very high calorie foods. Eating foods that are actually healthy don't feel successful. You don't get enough of a dopamine hit. But if you just decide to be comfortable being uncomfortable long enough, those dopamine receptors will regain sensitivity and healthy food will feel like the right choice again. That was the big key. The phrase that I remember thinking to myself when I, when I read his book was, I have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And if I can do that long enough, the oatmeal won't be a chore. And if I can do it a little bit longer, I'm actually going to look forward to the oatmeal. This is a biological process. It has to happen. This is what I'm going to do. And so what I decided to think about was why would I be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable in order to do this. You know, people talk about you have to identify your why. From the outside looking in, someone would say, well, this is very obvious. 
The guy weighs 350 pounds. He has diabetes and heart disease, and he nearly died from substance abuse. That's got to be why he's willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And while it's true, every one of those things was happening to me, people are not motivated by negative consequences. We're just not. What's really important to recognize is what's great about negative consequences is that they highlight loving and meaningful bonds in your life that are being threatened. Those loving and meaningful bonds in your life that are being threatened, that's why you do what you do. That's why we do what we do right now. That's why we learn to do it better. And that's why we learn to do new things so that we can be more connected and more present with loving and meaningful bonds in our lives that give us the experience of being alive in a meaningful way. That's really important. You have to be willing to say, I'm doing this because I love my health and my body, not because I don't want disease. Nobody wants disease. Nobody cares about their diabetes. You only care about something you're willing to care for. That's really useful. That's really important. And I have been a person who saw my body as an adversary for most of my life. I I always had, I was always slightly overweight as a kid, all the way up until high school. So I found drugs. My body had always been something that I thought I had to outcompete through restriction and exertion in order to hopefully win a battle on a scale once in a while, but never really doing any good. And I think that for me, surviving suicide was the way that I really relearned what was actually going on. It was like my body's ultimate expression of saying, we have never once given up on you. We have been your ally your entire life. We've been fighting for you since the day you've been born. The reason why you made it to age 30, even though you were eating fast food all the time, doing drugs all the time, had all these undiagnosed conditions for years, and you didn't die is because we don't want you to die. My body loves me. My body is my ally. My body is my teammate. And one of the things you do when you have an ally is you never restrict from an ally. You supply your ally with what it needs to fight for you. And once I had this realization that my body wasn't my adversary, it was my ally, it was almost as if I heard every single cell of my body say with immense relief, my God, we've been waiting your whole life for this. And I decided I was going to make every decision around food a decision to give my body what it needs, not avoid what it doesn't. So I started making oatmeal bowls in the morning, rice and bean bowls for lunch, rice and bean bowls for dinner. And then I did something that I didn't know was going to be a really smart thing to do, but I did it out of necessity was I sat down and I wrote a meal plan. I wrote oatmeal and cinnamon and fruit for breakfast, rice and bean bowl for lunch. I couldn't think of another thing. So I just wrote rice and bean bowl for dinner. And I looked at the next seven, six days. I go, man, I got to write six more days of meals. I don't know what to do. So I took my pencil and I drew a line from Monday all the way through the rest of the week and wrote repeat. So I ate the same meals every single day for seven days. What I ended up doing was I made it unbelievably obvious and unbelievably easy to do the healing thing. I made every meal take no more than five minutes. Everything was microwavable. I made it so that There wasn't a single meal that I knew exactly what I was going to eat and when I was going to eat it and how easy it was to make. This made it, this is really important when you're building systems of habits. Having a system that allows you to be successful is great. Having a system that allows you to be successful with ease is even better. And now I'm not telling anybody to do this, but I had such success the first seven days. My blood glucose dropped 100 points in a week. And I didn't weigh myself, but I could tell that my weight was, was down. My blood pressure was better. And so I just kept going with those meals. I ended up eating those meals every single day for 10 months. You don't have to do that. That's just something I did. But after four months, I completely reversed my diabetes, my heart disease, and my erectile dysfunction. By 10 months, I had lost over 100 pounds. And within one year, I was off of every single medication I was put on in rehab, the antidepressants, the mood stabilizers, the sleeping medications, the anxiety medications, and the ADHD medications, all of it. And food was like a vehicle for me that allowed me to reconnect to the experience of being alive in a meaningful way. And that's so important. It's it's really, really important because what we need to know about addiction recovery is that it makes sense. Addiction makes sense. I want to shout this from the rooftops so much because people say, why do you think you had a drug problem? Why were drugs a problem for you? Drugs weren't a problem. They were a reasonable solution that made sense given the state of disconnection that I had been experiencing. 
okay, I want to create a story for you here. Let's go back 10, 20, 10 years ago when my addiction was at its worst. And you come to me, I'm completely severed from a loving and meaningful bond with myself, both physically and emotionally, that I do not want to show up and be present for on a daily basis. Severed from a loving and meaningful relationship with people in my life, I don't want to show up and be present for it on a daily basis. I have no purpose to share with other people or with a community of shared respect. And my future feels unbelievably unsafe. Now you take this person who has meaningful and loving bonds so deeply severed and you offer this person incredible relief. It's very easy and very repeatable. It's going to feel incredibly attractive to that person. If you say, hey, look, that drug that I just gave you, that just relieved you of experiencing all that pain of your life being disconnected. If I can get you more, would you take it? That person is likely to say yes, because the need to feel relief is very, very high. And the opportunity to do it with ease has now just been delivered with unbelievable opportunity for this person. Now come back to me now. I've reconnected to a loving and meaningful bond with myself, both physically and emotionally. And I want to show up and be present for that bond every single day. I have a loving and meaningful bond with people in my life that I want to show up and be present for every single day. I have a purpose that I have a loving and meaningful bond with, that I want to share within a community of shared respect, that I want to show up and be present for that every single day. And my future now feels very safe. And I want to show up and work towards that future every single day. Even if you were to come and slip drugs into my drink, go, hey, you know, that drink you just had, you don't know that. But in that water, I put some Adderall or I put some cocaine or I put some you know, opiates in there. I would have the same euphoric experience that I had 10 years ago. And if that person was to say afterwards, do you want more of that? I'm a lot less likely to say yes, because using now removes my opportunity to be present for the loving and meaningful bonds in my life that I want to be present for every single day. Using makes sense. Addiction makes sense. Recovery shouldn't be, why can't you stop using? Addiction recovery should be about, why does it make sense that you need to use? And how can we help you reconnect to those bonds that have been severed for one or more reasons? And I think nutrition helped me learn how to reconnect to those loving and meaningful bonds. It was a a demonstration of how unbroken I actually was. I found myself in the worst state of health I'd ever been in. And by simply changing my environment to one that included junk food, to one that included plant food, in one year, I've been reconnected to the greatest state of health I've ever been in. And I really wanted to be present for that a lot. And it asked me to, to try to figure out how to be present to those other meaningful and loving bonds. And so I really think that plant-based nutrition for me was this unbelievable teacher of how to be present in your life in a loving and meaning and healthy way and how unbroken we all are. And so that's one of the reasons why I decided to run that study. But um, now that it's been, I'll have 10 years sober in October, I lost about 180 pounds. I'm the healthiest I've ever been. I'm I'm getting married in December. I love the opportunity to share my story with people because I'm not that special. I'm really not. I just figure out a way to do what everybody can do. And then I figured out how to do it very easily. That's the big part. And so uh, thank you for letting me share that story with you all. Thank you for sharing it. That is a lot. And I feel very proud of you. I I hardly (laughs) know you. you. And I feel like so many of those obstacles alone, food addiction, substance addiction, not loving yourself, all of those are huge obstacles in themselves. And the fact that you have overcome all of them is really remarkable. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. What's important is if people could understand that the reason why it's hard for them to make healthy decisions the reason why it might feel hard for them to make healthy decisions, the reason why it might feel hard for them to make healthy changes or, or, or integrate healthy habits is because the modern environment is designed to make unhealthy lifestyles very easy. That is a very important thing that people need to understand. We have a motivational system that is designed to figure out how to get the most for the least. Well, the modern environment is designed to do that to an extreme degree. We get more pleasure per bite for a lot less energy and a lot less time than it takes for most people to do, you know, let's say cooking a plant-based meal. I mean, my goodness, I can go to a store right now and open a bag of chips and have a thousand calories. That costs me no time and no energy, right? 
So that's very attractive. So when, if someone is trying to integrate healthy behaviors, healthy habits in their life around food and movement, you've got to understand that if your environment looks too much like the modern environment and not enough like your goals, you're likely going to make decisions that you would rather not make more often than you want. You have to go a step further from that. Once you shift your environment to look like your goals, you then have to make it easy to do them. Because if your new habits cost you more time and energy than your old habits, you're again likely to engage in old habits more often than you want. So number one, environment first. What does your immediate environment look like? Does it look like the modern environment outside your house? Or does it look like the goals for how you want to live your life? And are 90% of the calories in your house whole plant foods? Are, you know, it, have you figured out ways to make those meals in 10 minutes or less? Have you figured out how to do this with ease and repeatability? If you've done that, you're likely going to see yourself be very, very successful over the course of time. And then be very, very kind to yourself. One of the things I find surprising about the addiction recovery world and the diet world, and diet world and nutrition world are different. Diet culture is about a societal standard and nutrition uh, world is about evidence-based knowledge to empower people. The difference, the thing about the addiction recovery world and the diet world is that anything less than perfect is a failure. And that's pretty harmful because nothing in life is that way. I don't remember ever getting a 90 on a test and being upset. If I got an A, I was really happy, right? What we have to do is we have to give ourselves permission to understand that we're allowed to do this and not be perfect. But what we want to do is we want to do really well. We want to quantify what really well looks like. I'd like to get an A every week. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to say, how many calories do I want to eat in a week? And then 10% of those calories per week can come from anything I want. And I still get an A. Fantastic. I've made a phenomenal and profound shift in what I put into my body and the, uh, and the behaviors that I engage in. I'm likely to see incredible progress. This is exactly the way to go. And it creates a narrative. that There's no such thing as good foods and bad foods. There's beneficial patterns, and then there's patterns that don't serve your goals. People aren't overweight or sick because of a food choice. They're either healthy or unhealthy because they have a healthy dietary pattern or an unhealthy dietary pattern. You need your pattern of diet, your dietary pattern to look a lot like a plant-based dietary pattern 90% of the time. If you do that, you're great. And if on a Saturday you go and you have, you know, a high calorie vegan pastry, fine. It's 250 calories. It's not even close to enough calories to displace all the good you did that week. You're okay. You're going to do really, really well. But just be honest. What does 90% look like? And how can I work that into my life so that when I do have a bad day, if things do get stressful and I find myself, you know, with a pint of ice cream, if my belief is that in any amount this is equally wrong, I might as well eat the whole thing. But if you've given yourself permission to say, you know what, I, this is tough and I don't know how to handle this moment in any other way. I'm going to have a few bites of, of this vegan ice cream and I'm not going to beat myself up about it because I've done really well this week. You're likely to put it away because you don't need the whole thing. You, you, you can have it next week. It's not off limits. It's not evil. I think that's important. That's really important, especially it's January. People are making their New Year's resolutions and we see this in the vegan plant-based space where people start and then they go out with their friends, maybe drink too much, eat something that has meat or dairy. And then they're like, well, did the thing and now it's over and yeah. go back to their old patterns. And what you're saying is so smart because it allows you to the next day start over and go back to your cleaner eating, healthier for you habits and not beat yourself up for the choice you made last night. Yeah, I like to use an analogy. You know, I'm sure everybody who's listening, I bet you 90% of them have had a flat tire. And so to those people listening, I'm going to ask you all a question. How many of you had a flat tire? For those of you who have said yes, did you get out of your car and go, well, might as well pop the rest of them? No. What you did was you either fixed the tire yourself or you found someone who knows how and they showed you what to do and then you fixed your tire and then you went on with your day. If you have a meal or something in your day happens that stresses you out or for whatever reason you find food on your plate that doesn't look like your goals, 
it's okay. Just fix the tire and move on. Nothing has stopped you from moving forward. There's a phenomenal analogy that I like to use for people. And, and in 1969, uh, we had the, the first mission to the moon, okay? Where I like to consider this one of the greatest human feats ever. Think about it. We had never done this before, but we decided we're going to take humans from Earth. And we're going to land them safely on the moon. That's incredible. They must have had it all figured out. They must have known exactly what to do and which direction to go at all times, or they would never do this thing. They would never let them go. So what percentage of the flight time do you think they were actually on course to the moon? Do either of you know? No. Mm-mm. 2%. 2% wow. of the time. They spent 98% of the time course correcting. They spent 98% of the time figuring out how to get there safely. I like to use that analogy because that's what we all have to do. You're not going to know how to handle every situation when you start. It's going to have to ask you to figure things out as you go. That makes sense. It's reasonable that some moments might be hard and some moments might be easy. Some moments might, you might not even know which way to go. That makes sense. It's okay. What you do is occupy the mindset of a scientist who's running an experiment. You don't want to try to be right or wrong. You want to find out what's accurate. So if you do get it right, great. But you're also equally excited to figure out what doesn't work. Because finding out what doesn't work is also a value add to your life. It also lets you say, oh, well, you know what I'd really like to do is I'd I'd like to create some systems so that in the next time the situation happens, I go a different direction. It allows you to be excited about the journey and course corrections and figuring it out. It makes it about the systems that you build and not you yourself. You get to separate yourself from it. Say, the reason why I was successful or unsuccessful in that decision wasn't because I'm a failure. It's because I don't have a system that's strong enough to support that situation yet. And you get to refine your system. James Clear has a great quote. He says, people don't rise to the level of their goals. They fall to the level of their systems. If you're finding yourself in situations that are consistently frustrating, it's not because you don't have the determination or willpower or, or you're not good enough to do it. The system you have designed right now just needs to be refined to a system that can make that easier for you. People are incredibly disciplined. They're incredibly willful. And what most people end up doing is they try to use grit, determination, and willpower to outcompete environments that don't look like their goals. That's really hard to do. That's very, very hard to do. Instead of trying to be more disciplined, create a more disciplined environment for yourself. Your willpower will always be a lot less necessary when your environment doesn't require you to depend on it. This is a much more easy way to go. That's such good tips. And it's so interesting that our willpower really doesn't have that much control. And as we're stepping into the new year, that's all you have to look at examples. Like everybody sets goals and very, very few people achieve them. And you look, if you look at the people who aren't achieving them, it's not anything that they don't have the ability to. It's just we can only use our brains to try and fight what our internal subconscious mind that our mind is just automated driven to do based on our past life experiences that we can override that for a short term, but it's not sustainable. And when you talked about the importance of finding your why, I think it explains why so many people have to hit rock bottom before they make a massive change. And if you ask anyone like, why did you go vegan? Why did you start eating healthy? Usually there's like a massive traumatic event that caused that. Or they were very lucky and found the information another way and felt inspired. But oftentimes people feel like, or I think our brains are so set up to protect us from being uncomfortable that often change happens when we're either in a situation where we feel so good and inspired and like we have space in our life already that we're like, cool, we can do new things. Let's try it. Or when we hit rock bottom and part of hitting rock bottom is getting to that emotional place where you really dig deep and you connect with what does my life look like? How does this play out? Like in a visual, if I go this route versus another route and it allows you to almost like rewire your subconscious and have this shift that gets your whole self on board. So your brain is no longer fighting what your thoughts are telling you behind 
the closed doors. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. rock bottom is a beautiful place because what I think it offers people is it's for the first time ever presented front and center. If things don't change, you're likely to lose everything that is meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it shows you exactly why you want to live. It shows you exactly why you're willing to change, not why you don't want to do something anymore, why you want to do something different, why you're willing to put food, put plants on your plate, not why you don't want to eat meat anymore, right? One of my favorite quotes is you can't not do something, right? Every decision to not do something is in reality a decision to do something else. Like I didn't decide to not stand for this podcast recording. I decided to sit. And so rock bottom is this amazing place where for the first time ever, you're presented with this reality that if change doesn't happen tomorrow, you're likely to have these wonderful, loving and meaningful things taken from you. And it shows you that there's something wonderful, loving and meaningful in your life. And that's your why, those loving and meaningful things. That's why you're going to do this thing. That's why you're willing to do this thing. And, you know, for people who hit rock bottom, it's a much more inspiring place because tomorrow is a lot less promised for them. They've hit a spot where unless change happens tomorrow, it might, there might not be a day after that. And so this is usually why those individuals end up making radically massive shifts. But for the average person, radical massive shifts aren't necessary all the time. I think one of the reasons why New Year's resolutions typically fail is because people set these unprecedented, massive challenges to themselves. They'll say, I'm going to stop eating sugar for life. Okay, first of all, the human brain really can't conceptualize beyond four to six weeks. So it doesn't understand the resources necessary. So don't think longer than that. What you want to say is, I'd like to reduce my sugar consumption by 80% for a month and see what value exists if I do that. What that does is that sets you on a course of discovery. If I reduce my sugar or excess fat consumption for 30 days by 80%, what opportunities are now gifted to my health and my life? And if you discover huge opportunity after 30 days, what what now happens is you gain motivation. Day one is inspiration. Day 30 is motivation. You've discovered that you seem to have figured something out. Seems like you figured out how to create unbelievable opportunity for your health and your life by doing this thing. Now you're motivated to find out if it's true. And in order to do that, you got to run the experiment again for another 30 days and see if you get similar results. And you're motivated to find that out. So you go another 30 days. Likely you find the same thing. After you find the same thing, you're like, okay, I'm keeping this. This is a valuable piece of knowledge I've just figured out. I can't wait to keep doing this for longer. But if you say, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, your brain has no understanding of how to set yourself up for success that way. Like if I was to tell you, Tony, I want you to eat oatmeal for breakfast for the next week. All right. What's going to happen is your brain is going to say, okay, I know exactly how much oatmeal I need to buy for the week in order to do that. I know how much time every morning that's going to take in order for me to make it. This feels like something I can do. If I was to say to you, who's never, and let's just imagine you've never eaten a plant-based diet in your life. I say, you got to eat a plant-based diet for the rest of your life. Your brain is trying to figure out how much time, energy, and resources are required to complete that task. And it can't. And now it feels overwhelming and undoable. And anytime you make a step outside of that goal, like you end up eating, you know, let's just say you go and you have eggs for breakfast just once, you're going to go, there it is, proof I can't do it for the rest of my life. There you go. But if you were to say, what I want to do is I want to eat a plant-based diet 80% of the time for 30 days and see what happens, that's a doable goal. That's a valuable resolution to make. Absolutely. Making solution pathways possible so that you'll receive that positive feedback loop is so, so helpful. And then also finding a way to like get in the mental state where you can be ready to make change without hitting rock bottom. And I would just challenge all of those listening today to think about something that you maybe want to change in in your life or a goal that you have and think out, like take some time and quiet space to think out the pathways. What, where does, what does your life look like? Visualize it. If you don't make any changes, who gets hurt? How do you get hurt? What do you not achieve that you want to achieve in your life? How does that feel one year, five year, 10 years down the line? And then take time to think about what happens if you do make the changes that you want. 
and visualize that. What could your life look like? What are the goals that you have? Who can you connect with? How much better do you feel every day? Like, just think those out. And it's crazy the power of thought to once you have that visualize, visual will help you make the more practical changes every day. And Adam, I know you offer a lot of coaching and a ton of resources out there. I know we have to wrap up our episode, but can you share any, any final words of advice and then how people can find, find you online and what could be most helpful to them? So addiction recovery is a, is a, an important, something I hold very important in my life. And so one of the things I want to say to anybody out there who may be struggling, or if you know someone who's struggling, and certainly I want to speak to those who know someone who's struggling. If you know someone who's struggling and you love this person, you don't need to have answers for them. Believe me, more than answers to our problems with substance abuse, people who are struggling with substance abuse just want to know that they've not been forgotten and ignored by people who matter to them. The most valuable thing you can do for this person is call them or text them, email them, whatever, and say to them, I love you. I love you whether you're using or you're not. I love you whatever state you're in. And if you need me, I'll sit with you because I don't want you to be alone or feel alone. When we offer this opportunity to be present with people, not with their struggle or as a person who's trying to solve their problems for them, that person feels seen and they feel heard and they feel remembered. And that's a huge, huge gift to this person. If you offer the opportunity to sit with them, they might ask you to stay. And if they ask you to stay, they might ask you for help. And you don't have to have answers. You can just say, I don't know what to do, but I bet you and I could figure it out together. Or we can find someone who can help us figure it out together. This is one of the best things you can do for someone who's struggling. It's to let them know they matter to you. They have value in your life. You have value in their life. And you're reminding them of that. You're reminding them that they matter and they always have and they always will. And if they need help, it's okay that they don't know what to do. It's okay that they've been afraid to ask, but you're going to be there to help them figure it out if you can, or you can find someone who can help them figure it out. This is one of the things I tell people all the time. I do coaching for uh, weight loss and food addiction. You can reach me through my Instagram at plantbasedaddict. And uh, something I've done for every almost every podcast I've ever done since uh, my, my very, very dear friend, David Clark, passed away is he has one of the best quotes I've ever heard. And I like to leave people with it. We've all heard the uh, saying, if you want to be happy, you should live like it's the last day of your life, right? If you really want to be happy, just imagine that life won't be there tomorrow and just go do whatever you want. Well, that's not really a reality thing. If if today, if tomorrow wasn't promised to me, I, I wouldn't be doing some of the things that also have meaning. I'd probably go do something ridiculous. But if you really want to live a happier life, Try treating everybody you meet as if they were living the last day of their life. What would you allow of them and still accept them? They don't have to be exactly like you. They don't have to eat the way you do. They don't have to think the way you do. And you'd still allow them to be human and perfect in there. I love the restructuring of that thought. I love the way he says it. And I find it to be very valuable for me. And I certainly don't do it all the time, but I try to do it as much as possible. Wow. I love that. Adam. You brought me to tears over here. <laughs> you made me sweaty and shaky and just took took us through such a story and all of our listeners of your personal journey. And I just want to thank you for sharing so authentically and so openly. And a lot of what you just shared, I feel like I needed to hear and I will apply to my life and it will better both my lives and those that I love. So I just want to just deeply thank you for that. Um, oh, thank pleasure. you so much. Thank you. A quick reminder to check out our sponsors of this episode, the Plant-Based on a Budget Meal Plans, which you can find at plantbasedmealplan.com. Don't forget to join the meal planning challenge kicking off this January. We would love to see you there. And of course, Paco Foods. You can find them at mypaco.com. And right now you can get 50% off of your first box of their meaty dog food, specially designed for dogs, made from plants mypaco.com. Adam is very obviously an incredible person and speaker and 
he moved both Michelle and I, we felt so many different things throughout the interview. And um, I'm just really grateful for his time and, and for inspiring us and hopefully all of you too. I want to encourage everybody to take um, some time somehow to process because it is a lot. And to just take note of all the the advice that Adam shared, because there's so much of it that's a- applicable in different ways. We all have very different struggles and different goals, and there's so much that can be applied to our own lives. So yes, thank you again, Adam. If any of you listening are eager for a healthy reboot or need some support with what to eat that's plant-based, you can always check out the meal plans that Tony and I have created, the plant-based on a budget meal plans that you can find at plantbasedmealplan.com. We always have really fun January events for our meal plan challenge. So you can find all that and more at plantbasedmealplan.com. You can also find tons of resources if you are stepping into a vegan lifestyle for the first time or want to try vegan this year. You can find tons of veganuary stuff over at our websites at worldofvegan.com and plantbasedonabudget.com. And we hope to see you there. Thank you all so, so much for listening. Wishing you all the very best kickstart to the year. And we will talk to you in the next episode. Thanks, everyone. Bye.